Reparations is saying that the reason why black Americans are the bottom caste in American society is because we have been damaged. And my and the damage damage I have an acrostic that I think explains what damage has been done to black people and it's the word injustice. When we talk about repairing black people, we're talking about I repairing the image of black people. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Dr. Kevin Cosby. Dr. Cosby is the president of Simmons College. Dr. Cosby has served as the senior pastor of St. Stephen's Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Dr. Cosby, thank you for joining the conversation. Well, thank you so very much. I'm honored to uh, participate and, and dialogue with you. Well, we've got a lot to get to, including your new book, uh, mm-hmm. Getting to the Promised Land. But before we get there, I have to ask you about uh, your weight training. You posted a video recently of you doing some pretty high intensity workout, uh, a medicine ball that you were power smashing yeah. onto the ground. My, I guess yeah. my question is, where do you find the time to do all this? Well, <laughs> well you know, you have to make the time. You know, uh, it's, inc- it's incredibly important uh, that we do all we can to maximize our health. And uh, so that's uh, something I have done, oh, for over 40 years in terms of jogging and weightlifting and watching my diet. And, um, you know, everyone has three ages at the same time. You have a chronological age, 
that you can do nothing about. That's the year and the day you were born. You have a biological age, which we do have input on, and um, that has a lot to do with how you eat and how you exercise and how you take care of yourself. And I know, of course, that it has a whole lot to do with genetics, uh, but we do have input on our biological age. And then we have a psychological and spiritual age, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, are you still learning? Uh, do you still have a curiosity? Uh, so the age that I, I'm concerned about is not my chronological age, because you can be uh, 60 uh, chronologically, and you can be much younger physically and a, a teenager when it comes to uh, your psychological age. So that's that's how I live uh, live my life, and uh, I try to do what I can and let God do what I can, yeah. Well, speaking of aging, I feel like this this pandemic put 10 years on me, or at least my receding hairline and uh, bags under my eyes, to say the least. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, for you, you know, what was this pandemic experience like for, for Simmons College? Uh, it was um, it was the best of times, the tell two cities kind of paradox, the best of times, the worst of times. It was the worst of times because uh, of the initial anxiety of what this will mean for the school. I mean, the problem or the challenges with not only HBCUs, but all black institutions is um, the, the lack of wealth, the lack of resources. So it doesn't take um, much when to blow a black institution down. Um, so I was concerned about uh, the sustainability of the institution um, because of the the students not being on campus, uh, our school not having all of the equipment needed uh, to do distance learning, uh, the faculty not really prepared for that. Um, so it was the worst of times, but the paradox, it also proved to be the best of times because uh, concurrent with the pandemic was an unprecedented, um, unparalleled social justice movement that that focused the spotlight on inequities. And um, I think probably at no other time in American history has uh, those with wealth, philanthropy, and foundations ask the questions, um, have we been equitable? Now, of course, the black community knows the answer to that is no, you have not been equitable. All the data uh, highlights and demonstrates that when it comes to the funding of black institutions, there is great philanthropic discrimination. But because of the focus on equity, um, companies, foundations, and philanthropy who had not given to Simmons and HBCU hitherto invested. Uh, one company gave us the money, like $1.2 million of foundation in order to ramp up our distance learning. So as a result of the pandemic, our school acquired some new skills that will help us post-pandemic. So, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like they say, what they say about the boll weevil. You know, when the boll weevil destroyed the cotton crop, 
a brilliant scientist from Tuskegee University named George uh, Washington Carver helped uh, the southern farmer transition to soybeans and sweet potatoes and peanuts, that which the boll weevil could not get to. And it not only revolutionized farmer farming, but it also brought in unprecedented per- prosperity uh, to the South. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it was a par- it's been a paradox. And uh, so um, uh, we're thankful for all the things that we have learned and all the resources that we're able to garner as a result of the uh, pandemic. You've been the senior pastor of uh, the same church for, for nearly 42 years. Um, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder, how were you challenged these last 15 months in ways that were you were not in the past? Um, well, the ch- I don't think it... it it was not only it was there was a challenge, but there was a I was confronted with some new realities about what is essential church, and uh, many of the things that we were doing prior to um, the, the the pandemic. Well, it was uh, it was good, but it was not necessarily essential. And I think that what we learned was that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And we were able to discontinue doing some things that we probably will not continue doing after the pandemic. And I think we narrowed our focus to, I think, the fundamentals and the basics of what it means to do church. So uh, initially, like I said, like almost all pastors, well, how can you have church when you don't gather um, in in on a in uh, on a campus? And uh, so we learned how to, to gather online. And uh, gathering online, actually, everything grew. Our attendance grew. Our Sunday school attendance grew. And uh, irony of ironies, our offerings and contributions grew from the parishioners. And uh, so right now we hope to continue with an ambidextrous hybrid model of online and on campus. So, um, you know, you know, it's interesting how when you read the book of Acts, how God had to use persecution to get the church outside Jerusalem. And, uh, I think one of the tools in God's toolbox sometimes is is pain and difficulty and challenges to move us in a different direction. And and I think that's what COVID-19 did for our church. Joked with ministry friends across the country that most of us, you know, moderate to progressive theologians uh, have spent our careers criticizing televangelists, but then all of us became televangelists overnight with the necessity <laughs> of <laughs> Isn't that something. Yeah. Isn't uh, that you know. something? <laughs> yeah. Well, you have, you have a new book out, uh, getting to the promised yeah. land, uh, black America and the unfinished work of the civil rights movement. Uh, the biblical framework you built the book around is not the first arrival into the promised land by the Hebrew people after their enslavement in Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. Instead, you chose uh, the return to the promised land after the Babylonian captivity and exile 
tell us the theological significance behind this motif. Well, in most instances, uh, when we talk about uh, the black theological perspective, uh, usually we begin with Moses and Pharaoh, the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, James Cone, who systematized black theology, made Moses and Pharaoh as the the model for salvation uh, that um, the oppressor and the oppressed. And the reason why Pharaoh is an oppressor is because he didn't know he didn't know Yahweh. In fact, he even admits it. Well, who is who is the Lord? Pharaoh asked, and I should let these Hebrews go. So he has a sick sociology because he has a very sick theology. And uh, so the whole Moses model is that God is not neutral. Neither is God schizophrenic. And is uh, God is both for the oppressed and the oppressor. There's no universalism in in black traditional black theologies, especially that which was uh, systematized by James Cone. It was that God sides take sides with the oppressed, uh, which is of course a theme throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew prophets, and of course uh, is uh, especially the, the Luke and Jesus. Uh, God is a God who sides with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. Um, I chose, however, um, Nehemiah as a new model uh, because, as James Cones often said, uh, that different political circumstances would necessitate us looking at issues of racial justice through different biblical lenses. And I thought in the present day, um, with the myth of post-racialism and the utter inadequacies of integration, that the best model for um, understanding where the Black community is and what the Black community should do is the post-exilic community. And, the, and it's interesting because when I was in seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary back in the early 80s when Roy Honeycutt was the president and there were more moderate, uh, the seminary was a more moderate institution, because uh, Southern seminary and white moderates were very sensitive to the issue of integration and reconciliation, I had professors who actually condemned Nehemiah. And in retrospect, what I realized is they condemned Nehemiah and Ezra because they were looking at Nehemiah and Ezra through the lens of uh, the privileged, through the lens of um, those who were in power. So, of course, Nehemiah and Esther was used by uh, um, white nationalists and segregationists and uh, the Klan and uh, white citizens councils uh, to justify segregation and separatism. The problem with that perspective is, is that the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra is written from the perspective of the oppressed who are trying to maintain 
cultural integrity in the midst of a world that is seeking to bleach out their cultural distinctiveness. And I believe that that is what has happened to the black community, which the great William Edward Burkhart Du Bois warned us against, that that the way we were doing integration, which is what gave birth, by the way, to the critical race theory. The reason why critical race theory was born with uh, Professor Derry Bell at Harvard was because of how we instituted integration. We went from segregation to desegregation to integration to disintegration. And by disintegration, I mean the disintegration of black institutions. Um, Whites feel like, often feel like, that we've made great progress on the racial front because we have been able to move blacks into white space. So it's one-way integration. But the blacks who are moved into white space usually are the Nehemiahs and the Ezra's, the professional blacks in the black community who have been moved into white space uh, for purposes sometimes just of photo ops, sometimes for purposes of, of alleviating white guilt so that whites can say, look, we've got black people in our space. But it's blacks in white space in which they have positions without power, status, without strength, and they are still, it's still a dominant subordinate relationship. Uh, and the masses of blacks uh, are cut away. What makes Moses, if anything, great was that he did not allow himself to be co-opted by Pharaoh. You know, the text says in the book of Exodus that when he was grown up, he went out to see about his people. And that is a sign of true maturity. He says when he was grown up, he went to see about his people. And when you are truly mature, uh, you be, go out to see about your people. Moses was not concerned about being a racial diplomat and, and saying, let's see if we can get the Hebrews and the Egyptians to form some type of, of um, some um, racial reconciliation Sunday where we can worship together. That's not what they were concerned, most was concerned about. He was concerned about Hebrew empowerment. And that's basically what Nehemiah was concerned about and Ezra was concerned about, that in a Middle East that was made up of people from different lineages, uh, he wanted to make sure that those who were of the lineage of those of the Hebrews who were deported from Jerusalem into Babylon and, and, and Persia, that they maintain cultural distinctiveness, uh, that they were not swallowed up, that, that uh, cultural integrity is important, that, which is a theme of the New Testament that I do not have to become white to be saved, and whites don't have to become blacks, that I can maintain my ethnicity and still be a Christian. I can maintain my concerns and still be, uh, my distinct concerns as a black person and still be Christian. And the Judaizers said, no, you have to integrate. You have to abandon who you are, and you have to be absorbed into Hebrews or Jewish space. And Paul, who was the champion of diversity, said that's not the case. And basically, that's what 
that's what this book is all about. And the reason I call it getting to the promised land is because that was a phrase from Dr. King's last speech uh, in Memphis, April the 3rd, 1968, when Dr. King said, I may not get there with you, but we as a people, notice he says we and not me, we as a people, the collective will get to the promised land. Um, what has happened is, is that the class blacks have benefited, but the masses of blacks are still stuck. And the unfinished work of the, of the civil rights movement, which Dr. King was moving towards, uh, was economic justice. He said, what good is it for a black person to have the right to now go into a hotel and he doesn't have the means, he can check in, but he doesn't have the means to check out. So the unfinished work of the civil rights movement is economic justice, more specifically reparations. And this is basically what the book is about. And Nehemiah is a book about reparations because uh, the only reason that they were able to rebuild the wall in 52 days was at the beginning of the second chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah gets a grant from the from the from the leader of the Persian Empire, and it's that grant, those resources, that allowed Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem and make Jerusalem viable. And um, uh, there was opposition against that, and so that's my model for what the black community must do. Dr. Martin King Jr. says those who have been the victims of special mistreatment now should be the, the beneficiary of special treatment. And there is, an, I believe, an unhealthy collectivism or an unhealthy intersectionalism that uh, does not recognize the distinct and unique justice claims of Blacks who are the descendants of enslaved, Jim Crowed, Jane Crowed people. So while I am a proponent for justice for the immigrant, and I'm a proponent of justice for the LGBTQI community, I'm a proponent of justice uh, for women, Black people have a distinct and unique justice claim. We're the only groups who were brought to the country against our will for the sole purpose of making the country rich, which we did. And, and, when, and uh, when the Constitution was ratified in 1787, United States Constitution, and um, then in 1790 with the White Nationalization Act, which made uh, citizenships for whites only, America was at the bottom economically of all of the, the Western uh, countries. Uh, but by 1860, 70 years later, America was second economically only to Britain, and that is because of the free labor of enslaved people. And so these, we worked really, if you've taken the British rule, you have to take that in 1619 to 1865, 246 years. We worked 246 years without a paycheck. And then after uh, um, slavery was abolished with the 13th Amendment, uh, and after just a few years of Reconstruction from 1867 to 1877, 
we went back into a new form of semi-slavery called Jim Crow and Jane Crow. And um, that was all of that was not legally abolished until 1968 uh, with the Fair Housing Law. So uh, black people uh, have had their wealth extracted from them, and there have been obstacles for black people uh, experiencing or, or, or garnering wealth. And so the unfinished work of the civil rights movement is to fix the descendants of, of Jim Crow, Jane Crow, enslaved, lynched, redlined, um, what else can I say, um, mass incarcerated, police abused people who are at the bottom. We are the bottom cast in American society. The unfinished work of the civil rights struggle is to fix black people. And we cannot fix black people or we can't fix other people until we first fix black Americans. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. The Institute for Black Church Studies at BSK launched in August. The launch of the Institute brings leadership to Louisville, Kentucky's Festival of Faiths, an interfaith event that seeks to bring attention to certain issues or topics. This event will be held in Louisville, November 18th through the 20th. This year's theme is the Sacred Change, Central Conversations on Faith and Race. Dr. Lewis Brogdon, the Executive Director of the Institute of Black Church Studies at BSK, is leading this event, and BSK will be among the featured organizations. Specifically, BSK will host a session titled Black Faith's Encounters with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism. Learn more on how you can participate at institute.bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's take that concept a little bit deeper. You used a word earlier that Honestly, for a lot of people before 2020, the word reparations was not part of their vocabulary. However, this is something that you've been talking and preaching about for for a long time. So for those that aren't familiar with it, um, what do you mean by that? Take us a little deeper and then we'll get into talking about what that means from a governmental standpoint and and what that means for, for the church. So uh, for those that just aren't familiar, tell us what you mean by reparations, just kind of the general concept around it. Uh, reparations is simply the act of making amends for grievous injustices. So um, after World War II, um, the Nazis paid reparations to the victims of the Holocaust. So they 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 made repair, economic repair, for the injustices that was inflicted upon upon the Jews. Um, in uh, 1986 or 87, um, Ronald Reagan 
passed a uh, signed into law legislation that would repair uh, Japanese Americans who have their property confiscated during World War II and when put in internment camps. So there was there was economic repair because there was economic injury. Um, reparations is saying that the reason why Black Americans are the bottom caste in American society is because we have been damaged. And my and the in damage the damage I have an acrostic that I think explains what damage has been done to black people and it's the word injustice. When we talk about repairing black people, we're talking about I repairing the image of black people. Our image to quote Dr. King has been stigmatized. Uh, so there's a lot of biases, implicit biases against blacks. The reason why Tamir Rice can get shot in Cleveland playing with a toy gun was because of the image of black uh, of, a, of black criminality. Um, so repairing the image in is narrative, repairing the narrative, uh, which is important. Um, you know, we talk a lot about critical race theory. Everyone talks against critical race theory, but fundamentally critical race theory uh, would seek to repair the narrative because um, you, you've, you've got uh, a narrative about how America became America. Uh, you have um, Southern myths. Um, and uh, so repairing that narrative is, which is critically important. The J, the J we're talking about injustice, uh, image narrative J is Jim Crow. Jim and Jane Crow, which segregated and excluded blacks um, from, from protection, equal protection under the law. My father could not attend um, the university here in Louisville, the University of Louisville, because it was segregated. He paid taxes. In the state of Alabama, when my father was a kid, he was a sharecropper in Alabama. He comes from the same city as our senator in our state of Kentucky, uh, Mitch McConnell, Athens, Alabama. When Alabama in the 30s and 40s, uh, there was $15 of appropriation for white students and 30 cents for black students. So most blacks never got to the eighth grade. So you're talking about uh, Jim and Jane Crow. U is urban renewal, urban removal after 1948 with the Shelley versus Kelly decision that declared many business zones in the black community as um, slums and slum removal was really black removal. Uh, so you have urban renewal uh, as is slavery. I did not talk about that. Uh, uh, T is terrorism, lynching, terrorism. I is incarceration, and C is cops and courts, and uh, E is economic exclusion. And when you take those, those those injustices, and you take those factors, black people are at the bottom because of these damages done to blacks. Now we want to talk about we, let's be colorblind which means let's ignore the historical uh, patterns of injustice. And colorblind really means 
let's be history blind. And whenever you are history blind, that allows you to be justice blind. So the purpose of my book is to say, wait a minute, people, while we're celebrating diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, we're not there. We are, we are, in fact, that is a decoy, in my opinion, away from what we need to do fundamentally. In fact, I don't, whenever I hear people say diversity, equity, inclusion, I always add two letters to that, and that's C&E, and that's capital, and that's empowerment, and the capital is for black-led institutions. E is empowerment of black-led institutions, because when people, people talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, they're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in white space as that is though that is the only legitimate space. There are blacks, there's black spaces that need to be resourced. resourced. Um, I'm the president of a historically black college and university. We don't have endowment money. Our institutions need to be resourced. We have to rethink integration as more than the disintegration of black institutions. We need black institutions. What has hurt the black community is that we suffer from the lack of infrastructure in black neighborhoods because we have taken out of our community black leadership and put them in blacks in white space. I want to see black people return to black space. That's not segregation. Segregation was something legally imposed upon us by uh, the white community. That's not segregation. That's empowerment. We need black-led institutions. And this is what the book of Nehemiah was about. It is saying that we need Hebrew institutions. And the reason in the book of Nehemiah that Sam Ballot and Tobiah did not want a strong Jerusalem because they knew that a strong Jerusalem would compete with their communities. So if you have a strong Jerusalem where the walls are built up, then you can have some hotels in the in 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 Jerusalem, and you can have businesses in the community. You can uh, have stores in the community, and uh, they didn't want a strong Jerusalem because they felt there would be economic competition, which is why Sam Ballot and Tobiah railed out against Nehemiah. You know, it's always, if you, if you, you can always trace everything back to the money. You know, it has something to do with economics. It has something to do with power. And Nehemiah mobilized his people to build. And it's interesting, they built the wall that was right across from their house. So when, when people, the reason they had a mind to work was because if you read the fourth chapter of Nehemiah, they got money to build the wall right in front of their house. So they saw their neighborhood being transformed, so they got motivated. Well, we don't see many black neighborhoods being transformed. We see them being deformed because we take out the mass, we take out black leadership and black wealth out of the black community and, and, and put them into white space. So, and Nehemiah starts off, quote unquote, in white space. He's the cupbearer for Persia, for the king of Persia which means that he was working for the oppressor. But uh, his brother Hanani helped to radicalize Nehemiah. There's no way Nehemiah could have had the job he had unless he was a racial diplomat. He went from being a racial diplomat to being a race-conscious brother who forsook his position to help empower his people in the, in the, in the, in the hood. 
And that's what this book is basically about. Um, how do we help the masses of Blacks who have been left behind? That's the unfinished work of the civil rights movement. You know, from a, a denominational perspective, it would be super easy for folks with uh, within CBF to detach themselves from the uh, infamous legacy of Southern Baptist as ties to Jim Crow laws, segregationist slavery, especially since many of us have not been a part of that group for over 30 years. But that was our history. Uh, just because we haven't been a part of something for 30 years doesn't mean that we can abandon the tradition uh, that we came out of. So, so what about the faith traditions that were the beneficiaries of slave labor revenue? W what should be done about reparations for, from the church? I think that the church and CBF would be wise to follow the ADOS movement because I'm coming from, I'm looking at this from the ADOS movement of uh, Yvette Carnell and Antonio Moore. And I think they have the best model for a black agenda uh, of reparations. And uh, I think that CBF uh, needs to go on record in favor of reparations and promote reparations. Because um, even if CBF did, did not do the untoward things that Southern Baptists did, uh, there is white skin privilege and whites do benefit uh, in this country just because they're white. Um, and I am deprived um, just because I'm black. And that's real. The biases against black people are real. It's not a figment of our imagination. We're not hallucinating. It is, it is real. And I think that coming out in support of reparations through the federal government is critically important. I wonder... You know, how might pastors um, who, who are trying to help their congregation um, see their complicity in, in this history and maybe even in its modernity, what's your advice for, for the pastors who are trying to uh, spiritually form their congregations to, to not just be aware, um, but to be active participants in, in the things that you're calling us to? Well, one thing you can do is to purchase my book <laughs> and read about uh, the unfinished work of the civil rights struggle. I think that also um, uh, preaching and teaching sermons on it and what the Bible has to say about reparations and, and, and justice, helping whites to understand their um, the the impact of policies and on the, the on the black community and the, how those policies are still hurting the black community. Uh, so I think educating there's two types of ignorance. There's 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 woeful ignorance and there's willful ignorance. And uh, woeful ignorance is mental. You just don't know. Willful ignorance is not mental. It's with the heart. You just don't want to know. And so much of our ignorance is not simply woeful. It's willful. 
Uh, we don't want to know because to know means we will be held responsible and accountable. We would like to believe the the myth of, of integration that we're post-racial because we have a quote-unquote black president uh, or had a black president and that um, you see interracial images um, on, you know, I, you know, one thing we have to move away from is uh, symbolism. Uh, for example, we're not race, racist because look at, look at, we want to put Harry Tubman's picture on a $20 bill. Well, that's symbolism. Another one is holidays. But we're not racist because after all, we now have Juneteenth. But uh, holidays is not what black people need. Black people don't want a holiday. They want a payday. And so holidays will never substitute for a payday. And then I is images, uh, like, um, you know, images on the, in the media of blacks and whites together or uh, whites wearing kente cloth and uh, things such as these, these images. And then um, finally, uh, tokenism. I mean, after all, we got some blacks who work in white space, but that does not affect the masses. And that's why Martin Luther King Jr. said, I may not get there with you, but he says, we, it's about the collective. How do we get the masses to, of, of blacks uh, to economic justice? And I think one of the most important points of the book is defining who black America is, which is what Nehemiah does. Everyone could not participate in building of the wall. They have uh, in multiple chapters, lineage, the lineage test, whether you could trace your lineage back uh, to those who were first deported out of uh, Jerusalem uh, around 586 or 587 BC. So you had a lineage test and in a, in a world where you have now blacks from West Africa and blacks from the Caribbean, what is unique about blacks who are the descendants of slaves as opposed to blacks who are from Haiti? Now, I'm not to, that's not to say that Haitians should not receive reparations. Haitians should, should receive reparations. However, Haitians should receive reparations from the French because the French... Uh, colonized and brutalized the Haitians. Black Americans should receive reparations from the federal government. If we can compare, repair, repair Germany with a Marshall Plan and repair Japan with a MacArthur Plan, surely we can repair Black America, who has been economically crippled through the centuries of deprivation that has economic deprivation that has been imposed upon us. There's so many um, questions I want to get to with you, but I want to be respectful of your time. So maybe um, it will end with this, this one. Um, racism in America has, has been more widely talked about today as a result of uh, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and, and on and on. And it has so many times in the past, the fight over racism has been weaponized by politicians, both for gaining constituents and stoking fears. Um, you yeah. wrote 
there is today more than ever a dogmatic insistence that American descendants of slavery conform to the sort of partisan politics that have so obviously produced nothing new in the way of positive outcomes for our groups. So I wonder if you might leave us with um, some thoughts on what people can do um, in the sense of um, advocating to their legislators on what legislative changes need to take place or be enacted in order to achieve some of these goals that you've laid out. One thing, uh, thank you for the question. I think one thing is, is that we not suppress the black vote and we not suppress American history because they go together. You suppress American history that you will not understand why it is essential that we protect the black vote. Um, so I think that those are two things, plus pushing for the um, George Floyd um, bills uh, that would protect blacks against police abuse. And most importantly, being an advocate of reparations. What I have discovered is the difference between the black community and the white community is this. Men in the white community say the goal should be blacks and whites, let's get along. That's not where black people are. Black people are saying getting along is not our goal. Getting ahead is our goal. We're trying to get out of the hole that racism has put us in. Secondly, here's a distinctive, I think, between the way blacks tend to see things and whites tend to see things. Whites look at where we are and where we have been and say, we're not where we used to be. So when you listen to whites talk about race, they're going to always talk about how things used to be where we are now and say, look, you can you can move into any neighborhood you want. There's no colored white only signs up. Uh, we're not where we used to be. But blacks are saying, look, you're saying we're not where we used to be. And we're saying we're not where we should be. And we're not where we should be when you talk about mass incarceration, when you talk about the absence of wealth in the black community, when you talk about the suspension rates in schools and how most blacks, like only maybe 10, 13 to 10 percent of most blacks are college and career ready. We're not where we should be based on the contributions that we have made uh, to the United States. And uh, looking at it through the looking at life through the lens of black people, I think uh, can help further the cause of racial justice. You know, instead of focusing on reconciliation, we should focus on repair. And repair comes only as a result of review. We must have if there were three R words, it would be R word one, review. Second R word, repair. Uh, third R way, R word, reconciliation. We want to jump over repair to reconciliation. If you steal my car on Monday and get saved on Tuesday and you're still driving my car on Wednesday, then you are not truly saved on Tuesday. 
you still my call Monday and experience salvation on Tuesday, let me tell you what you're going to do on Wednesday. You're going to return my car with gas and a tune-up. And that is what Zacchaeus did when he got saved. He said, a half of my goods I, I give to the poor. That's just that's just e- economic justice. Half I'll give to the poor. That, that has to do uh, with um, issues of poverty and and uh, the calcification of wealth by the 1%. I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. With the other half, he's paying reparation. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, I'll restore them fourfold. And Jesus says, salvation has come to your house. And we want salvation to come to the house of CBF and all Baptists through using Zacchaeus as a model, understanding that the masses of Blacks still live in disinvested and distressed neighborhoods, and having the class Blacks in white space to give whites the impression that we are now post-racial does not fix Black America. The only thing that will fix Black America is economic justice, and anything beyond that is 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 um, non-economic liberalism. We must have liberalism with with economic justice. The book is Getting to the Promised Land. Purchase it wherever books are sold. If you want to stay connected with Dr. Cosby, follow his work at Simmons College and St. Stephen's Church. Reverend Dr. Cosby, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. Uh, we it are, has been an honor to be with you. Well, it's, it's so, so hum- yeah, thank you. It's, it's so humbling to have somebody like yourself as such a, a leading pastoral and prophetic voice um, guiding our fellowship and, and the endless communities that you touch. So thank you for, for having this conversation. Thank you. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.